before that prayer, I meant to do something that ordinarily I would do in the time of announcements before worship. Uh, but since about half of our congregation was not here, I said, I'll just wait till just before the message because I want to introduce someone to you, um, a couple that's been attending here for quite some time. Uh, and uh, they met with the session this week and uh, joined Christ Presbyterian Church. Uh, this would be Tom and Sarah Hamer, and they're sitting on the very back row, so you're going to have to turn around to see them. So please stand. Please stand. Thank you. Jesus, the storm strider. This morning, I want you to become a part of the preparation for this message. I must tell you that I struggled all week with one basic question about this passage. Why did John put the miracle of Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the sixth chapter. I struggled with for two days, for 48 hours with this question. And you would say to me, I know you're saying it right now. Well, John, why does it matter? Just preach the fact of the miracle that it did happen. Well, I want to tell you why it matters. John only included seven miracles in his gospel. Seven miracles plus the resurrection of Jesus. Of the hundreds of miracles he could have chosen, only seven. Not only why did he choose to include this particular miracle, but why did he put it where he did? On the surface, it just seems random. And again, you're saying to me, well, John, I really don't care. And I don't think it should matter. Why does it matter? Good question. Let me show you. The sixth chapter opens, as we saw last week, with Jesus miraculously feeding between five and 10,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. The people were so overwhelmed, so ecstatic, they wanted to make him king right then and there. That's where we left off last week. And in fact, we're going to read it right now. Look at verse John 6, 35. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus, we're going to make you king whether you want to be king or not. At that exact moment, Jesus separates the disciples and says, get out of here. He dismisses the crowd and he goes off on the mountain. And what happens next is very important. The next day, on the other side of the lake, Jesus uses the feeding of the 5,000 to segue into his being the bread of life. 
They come asking questions about the meal they had eaten. And Jesus has this discourse on the bread of life. Those two events obviously go together, don't they? Anyone can recognize that. Ask any minister. Try this. Ask any minister. What is the subject of John chapter 6? You know what they'll say? The feeding of 5,000 and Jesus' discourse on being the bread of life. That's what they'll say. They'll never mention when you ask that question about Jesus walking on the water. However, for some reason, John places this miracle between the feeding of the 5,000 and the discourse on the bread of life. It's like a momentary distraction. Is that what it is? Just a distraction? Was it just random? The answer to that question is no, a resounding no. It wasn't random. I want us to look at three things about this miracle that will help us understand. First, I want you to see the rationale of the disciples. Secondly, I want you to see simply what Jesus did and then what Jesus said. So first, the rationale of the disciples. Go back to John 6, 35. Perceiving then they were about to come and make, take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, who, who do you think John is describing? You think like I did. You think he's describing the crowd. They're going to make him king by force. As I work through this scene this week, I realized that for some reason, I was not applying it to his disciples, just to the crowd. This was referring not only to the crowd, but to the disciples. If you know anything about those 12 disciples, if you've learned anything in our study of, of Luke, you know that they thought this way every day of their lives for three years. One week before the crucifixion, you know, the triumphal entry. When Jesus is entering Jerusalem as the Messiah of Israel, then there's throngs of thousands. What, what were the disciples thinking? The disciples were thinking, he's going to the palace. He's going to take the throne and reign, and we will reign with him. They were decimated. These same disciples that had spent three years with him, they were decimated by his crucifixion because their plan for Jesus, what they thought about Jesus, was completely different than what he was saying. That evening, as they climbed in the boat to go across the lake, they were excited about how this Messiah would provide for the physical needs of the people of Israel like no other king had ever done. There would be no more famine. There would be food on every table. He had just fed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Just think what he would do when they made him king. 
Now, Mark, in his record of Jesus walking on the water, makes an interesting comment about the rationale of the disciples when Jesus came to them walking on the water and got in the boat. It's there on your scripture sheet. It's Mark 6, 51. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What was the rationale of the disciples? They did not understand Jesus' purpose and the miracle of the loaves. They saw the sign. And they missed the significance of it completely. Now let's transition there. That's the rationale of the disciples. What did Jesus do? Look at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of the strong wind that was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now they had rowed for several hours. It was slow going against this headwind. The storm did not seem to be life-threatening. But the rowing was treacherous. What did Jesus do? He went to them by walking on the water. Before that, earlier, when he had left the disciples on the shore, he did something else that was often missed. He gave specific instructions for the disciples to go ahead without him. Look at Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, in other words, just as soon as he saw what the crowd was doing, immediately he made the disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. He commanded them, get in the boat, guys. Before he went up on the mountain to pray, think about it, he sent them into the storm. He had planned this encounter. He had a purpose. So after some time, Jesus strikes out across the water. Don't you wish you'd have been there? I thought about this all week. Just standing there. Jesus comes ashore. In his own land walking. And that's not impressive. But then he steps into the water. And you can still see his toes on top of the water. You can still see his ankle. Then he takes another step and another step and another step. But this was no walk on calm waters. The winds were fierce. The waves were high. Matthew and Mark both describe the storm. They had been rowing for most of the night. According to Matthew, Jesus came to them in the fourth watch of the night. That's the last watch 
It's from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So they had been rowing all night since the evening before. John tells us they had only advanced by three or four miles. Now, these same disciples on the same Sea of Galilee had been in a similar storm that was much, much worse with Jesus, probably just a few months earlier. They had thought that the storm would surely sink their boat. They were afraid of drowning, and several of these men were fish were, were professional fishermen. They had been on that lake all their lives. And they were scared. You remember, Jesus commanded the storm to stop, and the storm stopped. Those, those storms were not unusual. They were common on the Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. Winds would come off of the Mediterranean and come up the, the, the mountains surrounding the Sea of Galilee and then come down those mountains. Come down with tremendous force. But this time the storm was not life-threatening, but was making a miserable night for them. This was an easy trip on calm waters. So Jesus was not merely walking on water. He was striding on high waves against the severe wind. Now put yourself in the disciples' place. It's dark. No stars, no moon. Rain, wind. You can't see very far. Jesus, probably his outer robe was white. And they discerned something. Peter, John, Matthew say, what is, what is that? I mean, people don't walk on water. This was a ghost. They thought it was a ghost. That's what John said. He was there in the boat. And they cry out in abject fear. And Jesus speaks to them. The rationale of the disciples. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus say to them? Look at verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now at first reading, we don't think Jesus said that much. They were panicked by what they saw. They thought he was a ghost coming out of the darkness. Hard rain. He was just calming them. It's only me, guys. Don't be afraid. But what he said, folks, was far more than that. Jesus used, in the, in the New, New Testament written in Greek, and the phrase that is used to describe what Jesus says is the Greek phrase, ego amy. Amy means I am. Now, we're coming to the I am passages in John. We heard him say this morning in the scripture we read to the crowds the next day, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. In each of those Jesus used the phrase, ego 
made me. Why does that matter? Well, it matters for this reason. He could have said, Amy, just simply Amy. That means I am. If I was speaking Greek to you this morning, I would, I would say, Amy, John. I am John. Ego Amy is a more intense form of Amy. It's repetitious. It's, you're actually saying twice, I am. I am. Remember when Moses was at the burning bush and God was telling him, go back to Egypt. I want you to lead Israel out of Egypt. And Moses was aghast. He said, trying to make excuses. He said, who am I going to tell? Who am I going to say? When they ask me, who sent you? Where you come from? Who am I going to say sent me? What's your name? He said, I am that I am. And it's related directly to our passage. Because in the second century before Christ, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. Think about that. The Old Testament translated into Greek. You come to that passage and Moses says, who shall I tell them sent me? And you read in the Greek, ego, amy. That's what Jesus was saying to the disciples. Who is that? Ego, amy. I am that I am. So let's put this together. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves, two fish. The disciples in the crowd intended to compel him to become king. He tells the crowd the next day, look at verse 21. You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of loaves. That's why you're seeking me. The sound, Jesus was saying, the sign that I fed you, the sign that I took five loaves and two fish and fed you, was shouting at you who I am. And you only see what I can do for you. Let's make him king because he can do this for us. There'll be food on every table. If they had really understood the sign, they would not have said, let's make him king. They would have said, he is the king of heaven and earth. And they would have fallen on their faces. So what does Jesus do? He quickly dismisses everyone. He comes striding across the white caps on stormy waters driven by high winds. At that moment, at that miraculous moment, he's not feeding 5,000 people. He's not healing anyone. He's not bringing 120 gallons of wine to a wedding. He's not saving the disciples' lives. They're not in any danger. He is shouting at them with his actions and with his words, this is who I am. I'm the Lord of creation. This was solely, completely about Jesus. Now John leaves something out of his record. Maybe you thought about it this morning. Maybe when you read this and you say, was that when Peter walked on the water? Yep, that's exactly when it was. 
In Matthew's record, he talks about Peter walking on the water. They see Jesus like they do here. And Peter says, if you are really Jesus, you can tell me to come to you and I'll be able to, to walk to you. And Jesus simply said, come, come on, Peter. And he enabled Peter to walk on the water until Peter started looking at the white caps and looking at the wind, he began to sink. And you read in Matthew, it's, it's beautiful. You think about that. He, he reached, it says he reached down, and it's actually, this is what it says in Greek. He reached down and he picked Peter up. How in the world did he have leverage on water? You know, pick somebody up. Because he could walk on water. He picked Peter up. Now, John was there. He was in the boat. He was probably laughing at Peter. He left it out of his record. Why? John was written after Matthew. He knew what Matthew, he knew Matthew had included. No need for him to tell the story. John was saying, this is all about Jesus. It's not about Peter. It's Jesus, the Son of God, making himself known. That's what this is. Now, Matthew tells us that evening for the first time, the, the disciples momentarily got it. Look at Matthew 14, 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, remember back when, when Jesus stopped the storm? Just told the commanded the storm to stop, and it stopped. The water became calm. No wind. What did the disciples do then? They didn't worship him. You know what they did? They looked at each other and said, Who is this? Who is this that the wind and waves obey you? Here in John's passage, they momentarily got it. They didn't say, Who is this? He knew who it was. You're, you're the Son of God. You're deity. And they worship. Have you ever have you ever worshipped another human being? Have you ever kneeled before another human being in adoration and praise? That's what they did. But it was only momentarily. For they still returned to their own plans. Eventually, that Jesus would reign in Jerusalem and reign, they would reign with him. They wouldn't listen at all when he spoke about dying on the cross, would they? Even though he was God, even though he was Lord of all, they tried to correct him. No, that, that couldn't be. Talking about the height of arrogance. They were speaking to God. Saying, you can't do that. What happened then when he was on the cross? We've talked about, we talked about this just around Easter. Their faith died with him. When he was on the cross, when they were putting him in a tomb, they were not saying, he's the God of all creation. John did not say to Peter, remember, he came walking through the storm on the Sea of Galilee and he'll come striding out of that tomb too. He'll take that cross and literally slay the power of Satan with it. That's not what they were saying. Really. 
It was Jesus was past tense. It was over. So what do we take away from this? Folks, we don't elect Jesus. We don't make him our God. He is God. This morning, if you're not a Christian, he's the God of heaven and earth, whether you believe it or not. He's the God who made you. He's the God who sustains you. The only issue is whether you're going to bow the knee to him or not. Jesus never asked the disciples, who do you want me to be? Never. You can't find it. What did he ask them? Who do you say I am? Your answer to that question, who do you say Jesus is? Jesus would tell you, that doesn't make me who I am. I am who I am. Your answer will not change that. We need to hear this. Our society has made truth a relative thing. My truth, we have, you ever heard this? My truth may not be your truth. Your truth may not be my truth. But that's all right. It's, it's all truth. It's absurd. There's a story that I read in a book several years ago. And a man was talking about how truth had become relative in our culture. And he was trying to describe where our culture was. And so he told this apocryphal story. He said that the Stanford Research Institute, I thought this nailed it. The Stanford Research Institute was making a study in how people in different vocations thought, how they think. They defies several short tests that they would apply in interviews. They would interview people asking questions. The first interview they had was with an engineer. The researchers asked him, what does two plus two equal? And the engineer, being an engineer, did not hesitate. Well, if you mean in absolute terms, two plus two equals four. And they thanked him and dismissed the engineer. Next, they called an architect. They asked him, what does two plus two equal? Well, there's several possibilities. Two and two equals four. But also, three and one equals four. And also, two and one half and one and one half also equal four. So it's all a matter of choosing the right options. They thanked the architect and dismissed him. A fourth, the third man that they questioned that they interviewed was an attorney, was a lawyer. And they asked him, what does two plus two equal? He looked around the room as if he were about to say something secret. And then he got up and went and he closed the door and he came back and leaned across the table and he whispered, well, tell me, what would you like it to be? <laughs> That lawyer, in the book the man was writing, that lawyer represents our culture. We make our own truth. My believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was born of a virgin by the power of God, that he's the eternal one who became flesh, my believing those things does not make them true. It's not my truth. It is 
God's truth. That is the message of Jesus walking on the water. He is who he is. And you don't make him king. He is. Period. And that's what he was saying to the disciples because they were a part of that crowd. And he separated it from the crowd. And it was with a bit of firmness that God Almighty and Jesus Christ went to those men on the Sea of Galilee like he did. Wow, did the disciples ever need to hear that. Think of the difference it would have made at Calvary. They thought Jesus was a victim of the Sanhedrin and Pilate. In their minds, Jesus was not that Lord of glory that they thought he was. He wasn't the Lord of glory that chose the cross. He was forced upon the cross by Pilate, by the Romans, by the Sanhedrin. When all through Scripture, from the Old Testament, all through the New, God tells us He chose the cross before the foundation of the world. If they had completely understood Jesus walking on the water and assimilated that into the core of their being and understanding, they would have been waiting outside the tomb because He's Lord. And there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing that's Lord over him. Not the storm, not the Sanhedrin, not Pilate, not the Romans, not even death is Lord over him. He's Lord over all. Well, that's it. Let's hear the end. This morning... If you could return to those disciples after he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, you know what you could do? You could tell those disciples that saw this great feeding, you could have told them, I've seen and I know a far, far greater miracle than that. What is it? What did he say? He has taken his own body and he's taken his blood and he's fed millions and millions and millions of people for 2,000 years. You know, that's what Jesus was doing with the five loaves and two fish. It was just a small sign of a much greater banquet that the Son of God would provide. The feeding of the 5,000 pales in comparison to the meal from Calvary. Maybe you said during last week's message, wish I could have been there in that crowd that day to see him take five loaves and two fish and provide for 5,000, wow, that would have been awesome. Well, let me tell you something. If those disciples could trade places with you, the people that were there that day could trade places with you, they would. For this morning, this very morning, you will be fed by Christ with a meal beyond their comprehension.
kitchen. This is the meal from Calvary.